sometimes walking by faith and trusting God means doing things that on the surface don't seem to make sense. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. together to pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that we can approach such a powerful and in some ways daunting text of scripture that gives us such a clear picture of the son who was given for us. Lord, as we open this text and as we exposit it, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would give what is needed to strengthen me as your servant, and Lord, that you would provide us ears that would hear and hearts that would receive from you. Lord, we pray against distractions or anything in our minds that would in any way inhibit you from ministering to us in a way that is both profound and that is needed. And so we ask, Lord, now that you would speak for your servants are listening. We ask this in the name of at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus, our dear and precious Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. James chapter 1 begins with these words, starting in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We come now to the chapter that documents the single most important moment in Abraham's life. This is the testing of Abraham's faith, which, as James says, produces steadfastness, as he is instructed to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. If you've been in our study of Genesis any number of days, any length of time, you and I have noticed that Yahweh originally chose a man out of Ur of the Chaldees and called this man to go blindly, sort of, into the land that he would show him. And God had led this man, whom we originally were introduced to as Abram, to go to this land of Canaan, and God promised, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing. Whoever would bless this man would himself be blessed. Whoever mistreated him would, well, be cursed. God promised, you will become a great nation, and from your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's a picture of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come, and through him, all of the nations all the Gentiles would place their hope. But see, there's just one hang-up in this blessing. That is that Abraham's an old man, and his wife is unable to bear children. So perhaps God would bring a son through his servant Eleazar. That certainly was an acceptable cultural practice. God says, no, it's going to be through your own loins, Abraham. Well, perhaps God would bring a son through... Abram's loins, yes, but also through Sarah's Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. Again, God says no. It would be from Abram and Sarai 
that a son would be born. God even renames Abram, whose name means exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude, and he still has no children. God is promising something that he'll have to deliver on. Literally deliver. That was an unintended pun, but he literally would deliver a son. And Sarai, within a year, is told, you will conceive, you will give birth to this son. And she laughs at that news. And so God changes her name from Sarai, princess, my princess, to Sarah, the princess, and then says, you're to name this son Isaac, meaning he laughs. God was reminding them, I'm going to bring into your family something that brings great laughter, great joy, great awe at my provision, showing you the faithfulness and power of Yahweh. And last week, we studied Genesis 21 as, as this son Isaac is weaned, and then he's presented as the heir. But as we saw last week, Ishmael's son, or Ishmael, Hagar's son, laughs. He laughs at him. And so Sarah rightly suggests this slave woman and her son need to be cast out. This threat needs to be removed, this threat of God's promise and Isaac's uh, heritage. And so now as we come to chapter 22, all should be well. Isaac is growing up with no problems. He's the son of the promise. He's healthy. He's living with his parents in Beersheba. All that God had promised that will come to pass is now beginning to truly be fulfilled. Now, if we were writing a fairy tale, we might conclude chapter 21 with, they rode off into the sunset and what? They lived happily ever after. Wow, you guys are good. I've seen too many fairy tales. We know that that's not how life is. For many of us, as we get into our older years, we realize, no, it's not happily ever after. There's, there's a lot of trials. There's a lot of issues. And so as we turn the page from Genesis 21 to 22, we learn God has one final test for Abraham. And it's not as much to test his faith as it is to prove his faith, to perfect his faith. You see, Abraham, even at an old age, still needed his faith to be tested, to be proven. And as James says, this was in order to produce steadfastness. And that steadfastness needed to have its full effect so that Abraham's faith could be perfected, so he could be complete, lacking in nothing. Now, as often is the case, when we endure trials, when we endure testing, we begin to wrongly think that there's some act of cruelty on God's part. We start thinking, there's something deficient in my character, which certainly could be the case. Sometimes we do suffer because of sin in our life, but that's not always the case. But often we will begin to question God's character and say, you know, why am I going through this, Lord? Are you not good? Are, are you not sovereign? Are you not fill in the blank? And we question some act of cruelty on God's part. And we begin to question God. We argue with God. We disobey, with, uh, disobey God. But church, our faith is not to be lived in the sphere of theory. When we look in scripture, we see a loving father disciplines those he loves and our loving Heavenly Father will always prove the faith of his beloved children. So what we're going to read today is not an act of cruelty on God's part. This is a time of testing and proving and then blessing in Abraham's life. And so today we're going to look at three aspects of this testing. Together we're going to see these three sections. So if you're taking note, we're going to see verses 1 through 8 that Abraham's faith is proven. We're going to see in verses 9 through 14 
that Abraham's offering is provided, and we'll see in verses 15 through 19 that Abraham's offspring is preserved. But as we come to exposit these verses, there's actually a lot more happening than what we just read on the surface. The title of this sermon is The Lord Will Provide. And Genesis 22 is actually one of the most powerful pictures of the gospel in Scripture because it's a foreshadowing of our Lord himself who promises to provide himself the Lamb. A picture of Jesus, the beloved Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because he's the perfect offering on the Mount of God. So if you would, think of that picture as we go through this chapter and you'll understand better what's happening, all right? Let's begin with this first section, Abraham's faith is proven. First three words say, after these things. After all the things I've just recounted to you, all the things that Abraham has gone through, we now come to the moment when God tested Abraham. And God said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Recount with me the four stinging statements that God says to him. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, we just need to take a quick time out from the text here and be careful to note that God is not a fan, nor is he an advocate of child sacrifice. Okay, those of you who are parents, especially of teenagers, this is not a verse that is advocating for you to go home and to offer your children as a sacrifice because it's in the Bible. Okay, that's not what we want to do. In fact, there's plenty of verses that forbid it. If you were to look up uh, Jeremiah 7.31, Ezekiel 16, 20 and 21, there's many more, but there's plenty of verses that prohibit child sacrifice. The clearest is arguably Deuteronomy 18.10a. Look at how succinct and clear God is. He says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. So why would God invite Abraham to offer Isaac, the son of promise, as an offering? Well, it's not because he's cruel or unusual, but listen, he's putting his finger on the very thing in Abraham's life that could threaten to become an idol. Abraham may have been tempted to place his ultimate hope in Isaac instead of in Yahweh. And we know this. Whenever something that we have in our life that is good, and maybe even from God, it's good, but that good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it's no longer a good thing. It's now idolatry. And so God has blessed us with good things, but those good things cannot become ultimate things or they're sinful things. So verse 1 explains God tested Abraham. Notice it does not say God tempted Abraham, which is a unfortunate rendering in the King James Version. We know from James 1.13 that God does not tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted by evil. And so though God does not tempt us, he does test, he does prove faith. And some commentators say a test is not as much to produce faith as it is to reveal faith that's already there. In fact, Deuteronomy 8.2 explains this was the purpose for Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Again, it was not because God was cruel to them. The whole purpose, Deuteronomy 8.2, 
says this was to test your faith. And I don't know about you, I can't say they passed the test, to be honest. Testing was invited by the psalmist in Psalm 26. David said this, and some of you have said this on uh, or in the job. You've murmured, verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity. I've trusted in you without wavering. But David says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before me, and I walk in your faithfulness. Get that. He's inviting God. Test me. Test my heart. Test my mind. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, and who can understand it? Ladies, don't follow your heart. That is the worst advice someone can give you. Just follow your heart. Really? The heart's deceitfully wicked above all things. Don't follow your heart. That's the worst advice. But notice, God says through Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind to give every man according to his deeds, according to the fruit, or according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, when I used to be a teacher, I would often administer regularly quizzes and tests to my students. And this was not because I was vindictive, though some of the students may have thought that I was. Sometimes I actually did enjoy giving a, the tough test, so honest moment. But listen, the reason I gave the test was to verify learning. The, some of you homeschool parents know this. The test it proves that your children or that your students have learned the lesson. You want to verify learning. So if your student fails the test, it shows they didn't really learn the material. They may have to relearn the material in order to grow. You see, when God tests us, he often is putting things in our path to see how we respond. And when we pass the test, we find our faith growing and being confirmed. When we fail the test, often, like in school, we have to relearn the material. We get to this text and we ask the question, why did God say to Abraham, your only son? Wasn't Ishmael also Abraham's son? And we would say, yes, Ishmael was his son, but he was birthed through Hagar and he was birthed according to the flesh. He was not born of the spirit. And so God does not recognize what is born in the flesh. Now, you and I try to impress each other with things in the flesh. God's not impressed by that. God doesn't even notice it. In fact, Romans chapter 8 tells us that the unregenerate man cannot do anything that is pleasing to God because everything he does is in the flesh. And so he says, your only son, that's the only son God recognized. But notice where God is now pressing Abraham. He says, the son whom you love. The son whom you love. This is the first time love is mentioned in the scripture. Notice with me, the first mention of love is not about a husband endearing his love for his wife. It's not about a man and his dog. It's not about a psalm between two lovers. No, it's about father and son. Abraham is about to arguably lose everything that God has promised him as he kills the son of the promise. But notice his response in verse three. His response is on brand for Abraham. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son, Isaac. You and I would have left Isaac at home. I'll just sacrifice one of these two young men. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice with me, Abraham doesn't wait. He goes immediately the next day, but notice he goes early. He cuts the wood. He goes exactly 
to the place God had commanded him to go. Over and over, Abraham serves. He models for us as a great example of obedience that undergirds faith. Not perfect obedience, not perfect faith to be sure, but not one without the other. He trusts God and God credits that to him as righteousness, but he also obeys God proving his faith. You and I know this. You and I know that true faith will express itself in outward obedience. We can say all day long, I trust God, but do we obey him? Our obedience undergirds true faith. And so Abraham, he approaches early in the morning. We get to verse 4. It says in verse 4, or actually second half of verse 3, he cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose, went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, is he lying here? He knows what's about to happen. The servants don't seem to know. Isaac doesn't seem to know. Is he lying to them by saying, I and the boy will return? Well, the book of Hebrews clarifies this, explaining, no, Abraham actually believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. If you look on the screen, verse 19 there, the writer of Hebrews says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham trusted, if God is telling me to give this boy up, I will do it, but God is also powerful enough that he will raise him from the dead. God is sovereign, God is good. He's asking me to do a very difficult thing, But if he's asking me to do it, who am I to argue? I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, we must do everything that is included in the bounds of the divine command and do it all with scrupulous exactness and care. Indifferent obedience to God's command is practically disobedience. Careless obedience is dead obedience. The heart is gone out of it. Let us learn from Abraham how to obey. Amen. Sometimes walking by faith and trusting God means doing things that on the surface don't seem to make sense. Abraham knows the future lies with Isaac, but now in the same breath, God is telling him to kill Isaac. But he doesn't argue with God, he obeys. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but he's not in the business of trying to get clarification from God in his ways. I wonder what Israel felt when God says to them, I want you to walk around a walled city and then yell. That seems like an odd battle plan, doesn't it? I don't know if we should do that, Lord. Shouldn't we draw up armies and at least use bow and arrow? We go around and just yell? That's your whole tactic? And yet they do this and the walls of Jericho fall. God says to Moses, put your staff in the water. It's like, okay, Lord, there's an army coming at us and there's a sea in front of us. Put my staff in the water. That's what I'm, and yet he does it. And of course, the Red Sea parts. And so it doesn't have to make sense for God's people when God speaks. We don't need to listen for some audible voice. God has already spoken through his word. The question is, will we believe it? Will we obey it? And so note with me that he says in verse 5, I and the boy will go over there and worship 
and come again to you. This is also the first mention of the word worship in the scripture. And the word simply means to bow down. Worship, from the very first instance in scripture, is related to a living sacrifice of offering to God the glory that is due his name. And so Abraham rightly knew as he goes up the hill what this offering was all about. It was about worship. But I just want to, for a minute, look at the perspective of Isaac. Look at verse 7 with me. And Isaac said to his father uh, Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. That phrase, so they went both of them together, is repeated, uh, also noted in verse 6. So just imagine with me for a minute, you are Isaac. Do you think for a minute he's figured this out? So he, he sees the wood, he sees the fire, he sees the knife, but there's no lamb. He would have been used to offering sacrifices with his father. We know that Abraham constantly built altars to Yahweh wherever he went. He, he worshiped under the tamarisk tree in Beersheba. So Isaac would have grown up knowing, okay, I know how this works. We take the, the rocks, we construct this mound, and then we lay the wood rightly on there. We take the animal, we kill the animal, we spread the blood over the altar, and then we light it all ablaze in worship to Yahweh. Isaac knew what was supposed to happen. And so he's kind of adding things up. Okay, we have the, let's see, all the rocks up there. There's wood, there's fire, there's a knife. Where's the lamb? A lot of us in Sunday school may have been taught that Isaac is just a little, a little four or five-year-old at this point. Um, but I happen to think he was much older. He had to be at least 10 years old because we note here that Abraham laid all of the wood of the offering upon his son. So he's strong enough to carry the wood. I would argue he's strong enough for sure to take down his elderly dad and make a mad dash for it, for sure. But notice with me, even though that's true, he still submits to his father. He's willing to do whatever Abraham asks of him. But at the same time, he's bold enough to ask his dad, what's going on? And this tells me they must have had a very close and God-honoring relationship. And I wonder, in a household where Yahweh is trusted, where parents are approachable to be questioned, yet they're honorable enough to be obeyed, these are households where God is glorified. Now, Abraham does not lie to him and just, or just ignore him. He doesn't tell him directly, oh, you know what, it's not your lucky day, son. I'm sorry to tell you what's about to happen. But notice what he says. He says, the Lord will provide himself, the lamb. The way that this is originally constructed in the Hebrew, uh, it, uh, some have suggested that it reads this way, God will provide himself as the lamb. And so if that is true, this is true in more ways than Abraham could have imagined. God will provide himself the lamb. Now, we'll come back to that later, but for now, let's look at our second point, and that is that Abraham's offering is provided. Verse 9 says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. This is the moment, this is the point 
at which Abraham has proven that he fully trusts and obeys God. He believes God will raise Isaac from the dead. He's fully committed here to wholly obeying God. In other words, this isn't a rubber knife. It's not as if he got there, oh, I forgot the knife on me. He actually raises the knife. He looks down on his beloved son that has taken 25 years to see born. And Abraham here in this moment proves, I cherish God more than I cherish the thing that God has given me. In many of our lives, God has allowed us through fortune to actually have what we cherish taken from us so that we would learn to cherish him more. Some of us have been fortunate to not have those things taken from us because we do cherish God. But as many have learned, like Job, the Lord who gives and who takes away is blessed. Sometimes God gives. Sometimes he takes away. For some of you, he may have even taken away your child. But in the midst of that, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's sovereign, he's gracious, he's good. And even through the midst of that trial, that testing, we can cherish our great God. But notice verse 11. This is when he stops him. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now this is one of the 10 times in scripture where a name is immediately repeated twice for emphasis. Obviously, it's an important matter. That's why it's uh, emphasized. And in this instance, it's God stopping Abraham because he passed the test. And now God is going to bless him. But notice with me the angel of the Lord. And so this is a, another visit of what I believe is a theophany, a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus. He said, verse 12, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So as he puts the knife down, Abraham hears commotion behind him. He looks back and there's a ram. It's, uh, unfortunately, its horns were caught in the thicket. Unfortunate for him, fortunate for Isaac. Abraham went, took the ram, and notice he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. But notice with me verse 12, the proof that Abraham feared God was that he did not withhold his son from him. God says, "Now I know that you fear God. Why? Because you've not withhold withheld your son, your only son from me." He says, "Your only son" three times in this chapter. And then we come to verse 14. And verse 14 really is the the hinge most important verse in this chapter. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, that's Moses' note, it's still said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So notice that Abraham now names the place Yahweh Yaira. This is actually a new name for God, Yahweh Yaira. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church and we uh, grew up in a, in a tradition where we use the name Jehovah instead of Yahweh. Uh, I think Yahweh is a little more biblically accurate. And so we grew up with a song called Jehovah Jireh. You guys, any of you remember that song growing up? I'm not going to sing it for you. Okay, that is not my role. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, your grace is sufficient for me. Parents, play for your kids later today. Great song. So it's a little bit maybe different for us to identify 
God as Yahweh Yireh. But this is a new name for God. He has been known thus far as Elohim, the creator, as Adonai, the Lord, as God most high, El Elyon, the sovereign over all, as El Shaddai, the mighty God, as El Roy, the God who sees, as well as a few others. But now he's known as the Lord will provide. I like what David Gusick says here. He says, Abraham didn't name the place in reference to what he experienced. He didn't name it Mount Trial or Mount Agony or Mount Obedience. Instead, he named the hill in reference to what God did. He named it Mount Provision. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. A sacrifice here was still offered. So God provided this ram for Abraham to slaughter. And notice the language of verse 13. We have the word instead. So instead of Isaac being sacrificed, God provides a substitute. God's holiness still demands blood, demands death, demands a life to be offered. But instead of Isaac being that one who sheds his blood, God graciously provides a substitute on his behalf. And I'm so fascinated that God does not correct Abraham in naming him Yahweh Yireh. He doesn't say, hold on, hold on. That's not how I want to be known. No, God wants to be identified. He wants to be known to his people as the Lord who provides. For all of us this morning, there are a variety of needs. And the Lord this morning would say to you and to me, I will provide. Stephen Lawson says God would be sooner to renounce his own name than fail to provide for his people. It may be a variety of different things for you and for me this morning. Arguably, it would be. But all that we need is found in him. He is the Lord who provides. He is Yahweh, Yaira. You and I need to look no further. We don't need to look beyond Christ, beyond the provision that God has given us in his son. We don't have to look elsewhere into the things of this world to find our hope, to find our peace, to find true, lasting fulfillment. The Lord says, I will provide all that is needed. And so come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Is that what you need today? If you say, I just need forgiveness, well, you're in a good place because the world's not offering you forgiveness. The world will cancel you. The Lord Jesus Christ stands ready to save sinners. It may be your daily bread that's needed. And doesn't the Lord remind us when we pray, we pray in, for those simple basic needs, not our greeds, but for our needs. Lord, would you please provide our daily bread? The Lord says, I will provide all that is needed. So take heart, believer. You need look no further place than to the Lord. But notice more specifically what is said here. According to Moses, he says, this is, the Lord will provide, but he says, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Remember, this is the mountain region of Moriah. And if we have a map on the screen here, you'll notice that it's about 50 miles, if you can squint and see that, it's about 50 miles north of Beersheba. As we read, it takes about a three-day, slow, arduous journey. And this exact spot, the hill that Abraham ascends, is the exact spot that would later be crafted as the Temple Mount. So not only is the singular ram provided as a substitute for Isaac, as an offering to God, not only that one ram, but this is the exact place where Solomon's temple was built, 
where for centuries, tens of thousands of bulls, goats, and lambs, and other animals would be offered in worship to Yahweh. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You see, on this mountain, God provides for himself an offering here once, but for Israel, this is also the means, the spot where the people can be sanctified and their sins could be covered. This day of atonement, it could cover sin, but it would not perpetually cleanse sin. Every year, year after year after year, the priest would have to slaughter one animal as a propitiation, and he'd have to lay his hands on the other goat and confess the sins of the nation and then cast it out as the scapegoat, a picture of expiation, a substitute that satisfied God's wrath against man's unrighteousness. So the Lord says this is the mount of God where this will be provided. Abraham's offering is now provided for graciously with the substitute of the ram. But as we see in this third section, Abraham's offspring is also preserved. Let's look at this last section. Verse 15 says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now, just note real quick, when you and I were kids, we would swear, uh, I swear to God, you had to swear on something important or greater than you. I swear on grandma's grave, whatever it was. Since there is no one greater than God, he swears by himself. And notice what he says. He says, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, and he repeats it again. And then he gives a reaffirmation of the covenant that God has communicated to Abraham previously. Notice that he says in verse 17, and now some of these are going to be familiar, but one is different. He says, I will surely bless you. We've seen that before. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Yep, we've seen that before. Those are about the same number mathematically. If you're not into math, just note that's 10 to the 25th power. It's a very, very, very big number. So every time Abraham looks up, looks down, he's going to see the steadfast promise of God. Then in verse 18, we've seen this before. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's a picture of our Messiah, the seed, the offspring, singular, through whom all Gentiles, every nation, tribe, and tongue will look on Christ and will be named as one. There'll be some from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be named in the kingdom. So we've seen that before. But what we haven't seen is right there before verse 18, where he says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. This has replaced that phrase, the land that I will give you. And so this is a more full or enlarged promise underscoring the fact that Abraham's descendants will one day not just inhabit the land, they will march all the way to the gate of their enemies. They will dwell not only in the land, but also they'll assume the power of those who dwell there previously. This is a picture of utter victory. 
God's people will have their provision, but they'll also have great victory. And notice that God says at the end of it all, it's because you have obeyed my voice. Now, don't misunderstand this. The promises of God, he's not saying are coming because you obeyed. So don't misread that and say, oh, okay, as long as I obey God, then, then he'll give me all of his promises. No, the promises came decades before. So these are now just confirmed because Abraham through it all did not reject, ignore, or disobey God. So verse 19 says, Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Do you see what happened? Isaac comes off the mountain alive. Abraham comes off the mountain. He's joined together. They're joined together with the servants. They journey back together to Beersheba and Abraham will live there, living out many more of his final days. Now we read this text and we think about how do we apply this text to us? And I think there's two levels to this. There's maybe a more superficial, simple level where we may, and I don't want to say it's incorrect, but it's incomplete, where we would look at this and say, I need to trust God through a time of testing. And that's, that's actually true. We've read from James chapter 1. We, we read in Isaiah 48.10, God does test his people in the furnace of affliction. In fact, James would go on to say in verse 12 of chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It is true, isn't it? Sometimes God does test us. He does allow us to go through difficult trials. And maybe that's what you're enduring right now. You're going through a trial, a test, through family, friends, or circumstances outside of your control. And we could say this does apply to you. You can have joy as you're growing and you're maturing in your faith that's being proven. That's not a bad thing. God is working in your life. So we could apply it that way for sure. But I think there's a deeper and much greater, grander way to apply this. You see, something that should have jumped out at us and nagged us a little bit biblically from this chapter is that wasn't a lamb that was caught in the thicket. That was a ram. The question that we should be thinking about that the rest of the Old Testament asks is, where is the lamb? In fact, Genesis chapter 3 tells us there's going to be one born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent in his own death. He will put an end to the devil's work. And so the rest of the Old Testament is also a question, is it going to be Isaac? No, it's not. Is it going to be Jacob? No, it's not. Maybe it's Joseph. Maybe it's Benjamin. No, it's not. The rest of the Old Testament, it's not him. It's not him. But there's one coming. He'll be of the line of David. His throne will have no end. And where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that will take away the sin of the world? We read that God will provide himself that lamb. And we realize there is a glorious picture in this chapter, a foreshadowing of what was to take place on this exact hill centuries later as the perfect substitute was given in worship to Yahweh. We know it was centuries later when that enigmatic figure stood outside in the wilderness crying out that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and those who were following him and those who were on looking saw him point and say, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Mount Moriah was where Jerusalem stood many years later, and as King Solomon was building the temple, as tradition has it, the workers of Solomon's temple had to dig out the side of one of the uh, hills to produce some rocks, to produce a quarry of rocks. And as they were removing some of the particular rocks on this one part of Mount Moriah, they noticed that after months of work, the sunlight was hitting the pieces that had been removed from the side of that hill, and they observed, that looks a bit like a skull. And so they actually named that exact spot Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And it was at this exact spot where Rome decided we will crucify criminals here at Golgotha. And you and I know this was the same hill, wasn't it? That the true and better Isaac, who carried the wood up the hill, ascended. Simon carrying his cross. Jesus, the true son of God, was sacrificed as an offering. And so as we apply this, there's such a greater meaning than just get out there and be a better Abraham. Come on, guys. God is testing you. Lay it down. You and I certainly are not Isaac. I mean, what, do, what does that mean? If, if I'm Isaac, okay, your dad wants to kill you. I mean, there's no application there with Isaac. So who are we in this story? I kind of like the idea of me and you being the servants. We're waiting for the finished work of the father and the son as they join back to the servants, and we get to be recipients of the work that God has done. You see, Abraham is a picture of the father. The father carries the knife. The father carries the fire, the judgment, not the son. The son carries the cross. The son, Jesus, in John 3 says, I didn't come to judge the world or to condemn the world. The world's condemned already. I came to die and to save the world. And so we see the willing son carrying the wood up the hill to be a willing, obedient offering to the Father. We see Jesus, the lamb without blemish or defect, the spotless lamb of God. We see Jesus as that sacrificial substitute, like the ram. He was sacrificed in our stead. He died in our place, the place of death. And he offers once for all the precious blood that doesn't just merely cover our sin for another year, but fully forever cleanses it. Hebrews 9, 11 goes on to say, but when Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves or rams, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will his blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The proof that Abraham feared God, God says is, because you've not withheld your son, now I know that you fear me. And you know what for us, believer? For us, the proof that the Father loves us is the fact that because you've not withheld your own dear Son, now I know that you love me. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You and I are recipients of that finished work that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God accomplished for us at Calvary.
And so this morning, in response, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As we read in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? My prayer is that every time we read Genesis 22, we approach the hill of Calvary with awe, with wonder, with worship, and with gratitude. Why? Because the Lamb of God was provided for us. Amen? The hymn says it this way, Lamb of God so pure and spotless, Lamb of God for sinners slain, thy shed blood has wrought redemption, cleansing us from every stain. Lamb redeeming, Lamb redeeming, bearing all our sins away, bearing all our sins away. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer and in song. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning that you are Yahweh Yaira, the God who will provide. There is no greater need this morning in this church, in our lives, than for us to be in right standing before you. That is our greatest need. And yet we see the Lord will provide the perfect righteousness of his son imputed to us by faith. That is the work you've accomplished for us through your son. Lord, there are many needs we have in addition to that. The need for peace with God. And you have provided that because you have justified us. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because you've justified us, made us right. Lord, there are needs this morning to know our sins are forgiven and you have provided the means of forgiveness because the shedding of the blood of your son has now put us in right standing and fully forgiven. Lord, there are many needs this morning for us to know the assurance of our salvation and you have provided the true assurance that a believer can have by saying it is finished. Lord, there are many needs this morning of financial provision, of having our prayers answered with the fear of approaching a holy God and yet you have provided the perfect advocate and mediator, the one man between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Through your son, you have provided this. Lord, where else can we go? Where else can we look? We need look no further. We have all that we needed provided for us in the person and work of Christ. So this morning, we approach your throne through the merits of Christ. We give you praise and glory and thanks. And Lord, as we sing this song, reminding ourselves it is on Christ, the solid rock on which we stand. Lord, we don't look to the world. We don't look to legalism. We don't look outside of your provision. All of these things are sifting sand. Yet, Lord, you are the rock eternal. We look to you this morning. We behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And Lord, as Abraham, his faith was proven, we pray our faith will be genuinely proven and it will result in the praise and the glory of God. We ask this in the name above every name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.